Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff. And I'm Jesse Balmer. We cover politics and state government for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Ohio is in the middle of one of the biggest public corruption cases in state history. It involves a web of dark money, an Ohio-based Fortune 500 company, 4.5 million consumers, and some top politicos. The case has already taken some dramatic turns. Arrests, guilty pleas, FBI searches, executive firings, and the suicide of one defendant. It's a lot. And on this special episode of Ohio Politics Explains, we will walk you through how the FBI investigates cases of public corruption. Joining us is Todd Wickerham. He served as special agent in charge of the FBI Cincinnati office in 2019. He spent nearly two dozen years in the FBI, including 12 years in posts in Akron, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. He's now in the private sector. Welcome and thanks for joining us, Todd. Thank you very much for having me. So what is public corruption and why is it that the FBI is the agency that does the investigating? So public corruption, it's a breach of the public's trust. It's whether it's an elected or appointed official that rather utilizing their position of trust that we as the uh, citizens of our communities have put them in. They use it for personal uh, gain, whether that's financial or political gain for themselves. In general, like what does the FBI need to open a public corruption case? What are the requirements? So uh, you have to have predication, and that means, you know, some type of evidence to initiate the case. But because it is uh, public corruption and involves an elected official, that uh, there's a higher level of review. So the FBI calls it a sensitive investigative matter, which requires an additional legal review that a typical criminal type of case would not receive, as well as notification to FBI headquarters that an investigation of a public official has been initiated. So let's back up a little bit. What is predication? So predication is a set of facts that would indicate that there's been a violation of federal law. What would be an example of that? So it would be potentially some type of cooperating informant or witness that would come forward and provide information that the FBI would be able to validate. So, for instance, if they provide information that a a company has been awarded a contract, some type of bid for public work, and that company had not been the lowest bidder, right? Or they had provided something in kind to the public official to pick them for this, this contract. The FBI would probably typically look to make sure that that company did receive the contract, maybe get into the records and see evidence that would support that claim. Now, usually these public corruption cases take a super long time to build and to, and to put together. How is it different investigating public corruption as opposed to a violent crime like a drug deal or bank robbery or something like that? Um, so again, the importance of you know our, our form of government, we elect people that we count on to do the job on behalf of the people rather than themselves. Um, so there is potential if you do a public corruption case that you're going to be undoing an election, right? Somebody who's been elected by a majority of people that voted will. Uh, so the FBI wants to be very cautious and careful and really has a much higher standard of, you know, not only the investigative resources they put that to, but what the evidence says. So maybe a, a white collar case may be 
fully prosecuted based upon documents and text messages, things like that. Uh, in a public corruption case, you will typically uh, want to see somebody that can actually in person go up on the stand and validate that, yes, this text says that, I sent it, and this is what I meant if it's involving, say, you know, the, the funneling of money or a bribe or something like that. Because again, they take very seriously the idea that if somebody has been elected, that we should respect what the people who elected them wanted. And so it's a much higher standard of before you bring a case that indeed uh, that, that case can be proven. And why does the FBI investigate these cases as opposed to local law enforcement? So it's really a matter of priorities and also the ability for the FBI to focus on complex investigations like this. So these investigations um, often re oftentimes require sophisticated techniques, as the FBI would call them. So things like wiretaps, undercover investigations to be able to support and find evidence of these allegations. And, you know, our local partners who are partners with the FBI with almost everything is very difficult in a world where of, you know, high crime rates or things that happen in the communities to distract from these long-term cases. So that is why the FBI typically uh, works these public corruption cases until the end. Uh, the other piece of this is, you know, developing informants and confidential sources that help the case along. And, you know, the, some of the federal statutes that um, can be brought to bear against folks that may convince them that now is the right thing to do to provide evidence against a long-term colleague friend, family member. That kind of ties in with why the FBI works these so well is that in partnership with federal prosecutors, building these long-term cases via, uh, you know, smaller prosecutions along the way um, to get cooperation of defendants that were involved to be able to then make the case on, you know, either the elected official or the person most egregiously involved with uh, misconduct. Makes sense. And you've touched on quite a few of these, but what sort of techniques does the FBI use in these cases to kind of root out what's going on? So, uh, you know, for instance, a, a wiretap is, you know, now it can involve text messages and collecting those in real time to produce evidence of crimes that are occurring. It is, again, called a sophisticated technique because it is very difficult to get to that stage. So it requires the FBI collecting enough evidence to go to a judge and prove to the judge that there's something here. We have a limited amount of evidence to fully unveil the entire conspiracy. We have to do this very intrusive technique, which is listening to somebody's phone or monitoring their communications real time to collect evidence. That is a very, very high standard. It is not something you just do very quickly, and um, the FBI does have expertise in that area. Is it like on the HBO show, The Wire, where you got like a team sitting around listening to the calls 24-7? It absolutely is. And it's also a team that is not only listening 24-7, but has very strict instructions and rules set down by the court that they have to follow regarding minimizing conversations that aren't relevant to the investigation at hand. So if I'm a you know, talking to my daughter about the, you know, football game that I'm going to take her to tonight, I have to minimize that conversation. So not listen to it, not record it. And then within the court's rules, be able to go back and forth to try to find that criminal conduct and the evidence that we're trying to prove. So lots of oversight during this, lots of reporting back to the court, but it is people, you know, sitting in a room, headphones on, technology changes, right? It's not like it used to be with real to real, but it is very, very labor and heavily intensive on personnel time. So additionally, that's part of, again, why the FBI works these is being able to dedicate those resources to monitor and collect evidence properly 24-7. You guys also use GPS trackers? Sure. Uh, there's a, you, again, all of these things are 
court ordered and very important that you go to the judge and get the warrant and prove that this is a requirement to make a case prior to utilizing any type of technology like that that can be intrusive. So you got your confidential sources, your wiretaps, your GPS trackers. Do you pull trash? There's all sorts of different techniques like that that are utilized, not only in corruption cases, but all sorts of cases. But sure, when somebody's trash goes to the curb, it uh, is an indication that we don't want this anymore and anybody can come and take it. They hope the trash man does. But at times, uh, that's a great technique to develop evidence, usually at the beginning of a case. You mentioned uh, contracts that maybe people are awarded that were lowballed or something like that. Are there any other red flags that you're looking for that point to potential cases of public corruption? Sure. There is. You see things like you know, living above means that, that that's high end, right? Or, you know, does it make sense for, you know, a politician to be at a major league sport game in a you know, in a skybox with, you know, with an electrical contractor, you know, watching a hockey game, you know, things like that, that indicate that, you know, somebody's living above their means or, you know, these relationships are very cozy for somebody who's making a decision about who gets a contract and lots of time together or lots of, you know, kind of interesting relationships. So there's lots of indications, but uh, very often though, we rely on good public citizens to come forward and say, I, I've seen this, I've heard this, I've, I, you know, I'm concerned about this and provide that information that initiates at least the beginnings of looking at an investigation. When you're working on a case of quid pro quo, does it have to be something expressly stated or can you like have a wink and a nod? What kind of things are you looking for in cases like that? It's tough, right, to show that connection between a donation and a vote. And so, uh, again, part of the reason these cases are so difficult to work is that really showing that connectivity between the two. So yeah, it's it's a challenge. And again, that's part of the you know, developing you know, confidential human sources that can give you the context between the donation and the vote and say, oh, ab- absolutely, right? This was what was asked. This is what was told. And this is what had happened. And again, a big part of the these cases are developing those sources of people who either want to or sometimes really need to uh, cooperate and uh, provide you know, evidence of you know, the wrongdoing. Do you guys actually, I mean, you're talking about people who are living above their means or they're in the skybox at the professional sports event or you know, there's a contract that seems sketch. Those are things that we write about often. Do the agents read the newspaper? The agents out there are looking for anything and everything that, you know, to help further their investigations. But that's, it's not a uh, monitoring though, right? Like there needs to be predication. There needs to be a case initiated uh, to support that. So, you know, any thought of constantly looking online or, or, or Twitter or, uh, you know, constantly searching to find dirt doesn't happen. It, it, it occurs when there is enough evidence collected to be able to initiate that investigation that has multiple layers of review before the, uh, you know, a case is, evidence is collected and the case is made. But no, relationships in the communities um, and all sorts of information is, you know, it's a priority to, to protect, you know, how our, our system works. So they're always looking for insight that somebody may be breaking the law. And this is a big priority for the FBI is civil rights and public corruption, correct? That is correct. How did that evolve? So uh, I, I went and started in the FBI in 1997, and the criminal program was really the priority then. 9-11 happened, and there was a massive shift towards preventing the next significant terror attack. But during at that same time, the FBI realized that really leaned on partners to say, okay, we have this new focus of preventing a terrorist attack. What are the things that 
our partners can take and support us with and what are the things we still have to focus on and make sure that remain a, a priority. So since uh, 9-11, uh, in the criminal side of the FBI, uh, public corruption and civil rights have been the number one priority, and I'm sure will continue to be that into the future. So how widespread do you think public corruption is? Do listeners need to be concerned about this happening in their local governments? Is it everywhere? It is everywhere, unfortunately. It is widespread. I would caution, though, that, that most people get into government positions, whether they're elected or that they're appointed somehow uh, to do great things. And um, but un- unfortunately, at that at, at times, uh, that gets corrupted by obviously the number one thing is money, right? Of um, they're given all of a sudden find themselves in a position where things that were never offered to them before are readily you know available in terms of money. So I think it's widespread at, at every level. Um, but again, I don't think that uh, it impacts everything. But it's something that again we again always rely on citizens to bring things forward. Uh, to call the FBI and says something's not right here. And it, not, it doesn't always uh, result in an initiation of investigation. It probably usually doesn't, but um, we know that uh, it occurs everywhere at all levels. And how do kind of these large scale, you know, very publicly watched cases like, like this former speaker act as a deterrent for other bad behavior? Are you kind of hoping people look at this and say, you know, let's not try that at home? Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah, these cases that... Um, have widespread impact. Um, yeah, we think that they are a de- deterrent, and that's why they need to continue to be yeah, the focus of the FBI and, and the FBI's partners, right? It's here in Columbus, they have a longstanding public corruption task force that they work together with partners. So that is a really I- important part of it. Yeah, the task, the, the public corruption task force got set up, I think, when James, no, when um, Robert Mueller was the FBI director, right? So that was like a good more than a decade ago. Oh, I, I think it was in the early 2000s that the FBI, at least here in Columbus, set up their public corruption task force. And there was a focus from the FBI in the mid 2000s at some point to enhance public corruption po- programs in capital cities. I think it was called the Capital City Initiative, where um, resources were enhanced to be able to address public corruption in the state capitals across our country. And that's how the Columbus team got started, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. How big is the team? Can you um, say? It's, uh, it, it is a priority within the office, so they resource it accordingly. <laughs> the House Bill 6 case, the, the um, Ameramed case, the former deputy treasurer of the, of the state, that was a big case. The Clayton Lucky, Carlton Weddington, two members of the Ohio House, those were pretty big cases. How does the House Bill 6 case kind of rank in your two decades plus in the FBI? How, you know... How big of a deal is this? It's a significant case. So although I was not, I I had a very, very small piece in it, um, but I was up in Northeast Ohio. I was in Akron when the Cuyahoga County case took place, the FBI investigation. The Jimmy DeMora case? The DeMora case. And Mm -hmm. that case was also humongous. It actually changed the form of government in Cuyahoga County, went from the commissioners to a county executive based upon that case. So it's certainly uh, because it's statewide, not just localized in the county, is a very, very big case and even bigger than that in, again, from my perspective, because it impacts across the state. Um, it has it seems to have uh, tentacles that, you know, go multiple different places within our state. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I think there's a lot more to that, that that hasn't been made public yet, I'm sure. Stay tuned. Well, there is a trial coming up in January, right? So that's that's my perspective. I'm sure that trial will shed uh, shed light on 
many of the things that folks are curious about what happened. We are very much looking forward to it. Jesse and I um, have high hopes of covering it down in Cincinnati. And, and what's interesting is we've talked to our colleague, Sherry Coolidge at the Cincinnati Inquirer who covered City Hall or has covered City Hall for a long time. And she covered the Sittenfeld uh, trial down there, P.G. Sittenfeld, former city council member who was convicted. And she said she was blown away by all the stuff that she found out while sitting through the trial. Sure. I won't comment on Sittenfeld either. I was happened to be there when some of these things were started. So I made a commitment to uh, talk at a high level. All right. Anything else you want to add? No, I appreciate the media's focus and light on corruption is incredibly important for the public and for all of us who and want to make sure that the people who are supposed to be representing us as citizens of our communities and our states and our countries are doing the right thing in furtherance of making our keeping our country and our state great rather than enhancing themselves. So I love it that the media when the media is very focused on public corruption it needs to stay that way. Thank you. Right, thanks, Todd. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like NewarkAdvocate.com.